It's Thursday, April the 25th, 1935, in Sydney, Australia. Hundreds of thousands of visitors have flooded into the city for the Anzac Day public holiday. Some of these visitors find their way to the Coogee Aquarium Bass on a pier at the end of Coogee Beach. Owned by brothers Charlie and Bert Hobson, this popular tourist site is basically a 50-meter outdoor tank filled with sharks. Spectators crowd around the sides and peer down the sleek killing machines lurking beneath the surface. The latest attraction is a massive tiger shark. The 14 and a half foot monster has been captured after eating a smaller shark already snagged on one of the fixed baited lines that the Hobson brothers laid to catch their exhibits. It took a gang of burly men to haul the shark across the beach and transfer it into the brothers' pool. Though the shark appears a little sluggish in its new home, the Hobsons are hoping for great things from their latest acquisition, which they advertise as the largest tiger shark ever in captivity. Curiosity draws spectators in record numbers, especially at feeding time. Generally, the Hobson brothers like to make a spectacle of feeding time, sometimes throwing in rabbits for the bigger sharks to hone in on and devour. Okay, not live rabbits. This is a family show, after all. Still, it's pretty awe-inspiring to see the giant predators snap their massive jaws down on their food, rows of razor-sharp teeth cutting mercilessly through the flesh and bones. But this latest occupant of the aquarium doesn't seem hungry, almost as if he's eaten something that didn't quite agree with him. Charlie Hobson tries to tempt it with some mackerel, but the big fella is just not interested. Disappointed, the crowds begin to thin out. Just a few fascinated onlookers remain when the lethargic tiger shark suddenly perks up. It strikes the water with its tail, whipping up white foam. Then, as if it suddenly became possessed, it circles the pool at speed now and then bumping into the sides. The spectators back away in fear. The shark seems supercharged, like it might burst out of the pool and pick one of them off. It heads towards the shallow end, where it chases its tail before sinking to the bottom. All energy spent. The water grows suddenly cloudy and foul-smelling. Scum forms on the surface, and there, Floating in the middle of the scum, spectators are horrified to see a human arm with a rope attached to the wrist. The arm is surrounded by other objects disgorged from the shark's stomach. A rat, a bird, and parts of another shark. Presumably the smaller shark that the giant tiger shark ate. This isn't the kind of spectacle the Hobson brothers planned on presenting to the public. Bert springs into action. He grabs the pole and hooks the arm to pull it to the side. Meanwhile, Charlie Hobson calls the local police. Of course, no crime may have been committed at all. In 1934, 
there were eight shark attacks on human record in the Sydney Harbor area, six of them fatal. Tiger sharks in particular are known for their aggression, so the arm may have come from the victim of another attack or from someone who died accidentally in the water, whose body was then torn apart by scavenging sharks. Or maybe no one has died. Perhaps someone lost their arm in an accident, but somehow managed to get away alive. Okay, it's unlikely, but still, theoretically possible. Until the police begin their investigation, there's no way of knowing how the arm came to be in the shark, or whose arm it is. The task of answering the questions thrown up by the macabre discovery will eventually fall to an elite team of detectives from Sydney's Central Intelligence Bureau, the CIB for short, led by Detective Sergeant Frank Matthews, one of Australia's most experienced homicide investigators. Sydney's leading newspaper, The Truth, describes Matthews as a quiet, publicity-shunning officer endowed with a keen mentality. But if the publicity-shy Matthews hopes he can avoid the attention of the press in this case, <laughs> he's got another thing coming. From the moment the tiger shark vomits up the severed arm, the story grips the public imagination. And one of the most famous cases in Australian true crime history begins. My name is Mark Dodson. And welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we follow the tenacious Australian detective, Frank Matthews, as he takes on one of the most bizarre cases of his career. It's a case that'll test his abilities to the limit. A story full of twists, turns, and astonishing revelations. And to add to the pressure, He'll be conducting this investigation under the full glare of the press, with his superiors constantly breathing down his neck. At times, Detective Sergeant Matthews' determination to get to the truth borders on obsession. But the truth is an elusive prey. From Noiser, this is part one of The Arm and the Shark. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. first cops on the scene are local officers. They retrieve the arm from the pool and lay it on a small piece of burlap. Straight away, they notice a distinctive tattoo on the forearm. It shows two boxers in red shorts squaring up. It looks homemade. Someone somewhere must recognize it. But first, they need to establish for certain how the arm got in the tank. I mean, sure. The assumption is the shark vomited it up. But what if that isn't the case? What if someone dropped it in there? That would change everything. The Hobson brothers insist that there's always someone on duty watching the tank night and day. They are positive that no one could have sneaked the arm in there without being seen. So maybe it got through the pipe that feeds the salt water from the ocean, you know, into the tank. 
the officers are shown the strong mesh. It covers the inlet. Nothing could have slipped through that, least of all a human arm. It looks like the obvious explanation is the correct one. The arm was inside the shark and the shark spat it out. Now, soon after, the officers are joined at the aquarium by an expert in fingerprint analysis. He carefully removes the skin from the fingertips so that he can take it away to examine it, while the arm goes off to the city morgue. Tasked with examining the arm is senior government medical officer, Dr. Arthur Palmer. He calls in a colleague to assist him, a specialist in shark wounds. Both men are highly experienced surgeons, but neither's encountered anything like this before. Dr. Palmer is used to carrying out autopsies on complete bodies. It's strange to see just an arm lying there on the examining table. And of course, the lack of body, that means that they'll only be able to come to partial conclusions. For example, they won't be able to give a cause of death or even to say whether anybody has actually died. But by applying the same scientific method as they always do, they may be able to answer some important questions. Now, the obvious place to start is the wound at the end of the arm. If this was the result of a shark attack, they'd expect the flesh to have a ragged edge where the limb had been ripped away. Not only that, the bone, that would have been mangled as the mighty jaws crushed down on it. But this isn't what they're looking at. The wound is clean and precise. The shark expert points to some marks on the cartilage over the bone. These aren't the savage bite marks of a powerful predator. They're neat, regular scratches. This can mean only one thing. This arm was cut off by a sharp blade and then somehow ended up whole inside that hungry shark. Dr. Palmer agrees. This wasn't a shark attack. It was another human being. From the police point of view, this is a crucial discovery. It's a clear indication that a crime has been committed. After all, people don't just saw off their own arms. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I've spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects, the vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows. We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. When the tattooed arm floated to the top of the Kugi Aquarium Baths on Anzac Day, 1935, there were already three unsolved murders in the CIB's books. You couldn't open a newspaper without reading a scathing attack on the police. 
the police commissioner is feeling a lot of pressure. He makes it clear. He wants the severed arm case cleared up and fast. To tackle this high-profile case, the head of the CIB puts together a crack team led by Detective Sergeant Matthews. Matthews has put away many of Sydney's most notorious criminals. He has a reputation for being a loner. Even his fellow officers find him aloof, but he gets results. He's supported by his fellow detective, Sergeant Leonard Almond. Matthews and Almond are the best detectives the force has to offer, but as we'll discover, they don't always see eye to eye. Matthews' first task is to find out whose arm this is. A description of the distinctive boxing tattoo is published in a number of newspapers. Then, on the 28th of April, three days after the arm surfaced, detectives receive a phone call from a man called Edward Smith, saying that he believes the tattoo belongs to his brother Jim. The next day, Smith comes into CIB headquarters, accompanied by his sister-in-law, Gladys. Detective Matthew and Almond show them photographs of the tattoo. Edward confirms that this is his brother's arm. Gladys tells the detectives that on April 7th, her husband Jim told her he was going on a fishing trip to Cronulla, a seaside resort about 16 miles south of Sydney. She hasn't seen him since. That was about three weeks ago. The victim's identity is further confirmed by the fingerprint expert who matches prints taken from the arm to an ex-boxer and former billiard hall proprietor called James Smith. Smith had a minor conviction for allowing illegal gambling on his premises. The positive identification of the victim leaves Detective Sergeant Matthews feeling distinctly uncomfortable. You see, he knows Jim Smith. Smith was a small-time criminal with connections to the biggest players in Sydney's underworld. And in 1934, Matthews recruited him as a police informant. Was this the reason Smith's arm had ended up inside a shark tank? Had he been killed because his criminal friends found out he was a rat? In other words, was his death Matthews' fault? Let's go back a little to April 1934 when Jim Smith was involved in an insurance fraud pulled by two of Sydney's most prominent citizens, Reginald Holmes and Albert Stannard. Jim's part in the scam was to scuttle a luxury yacht so that Holmes and Stannard could pocket the insurance money. But the scuttling went wrong, and Jim found himself under suspicion. Detective Sergeant Matthews led the police investigation it seemed like a blatant conspiracy to defraud, which is why eyebrows were raised when Matthews dropped all charges. The rumors were he'd been bribed to look the other way. The truth was, Matthews had started a secret operation in which he planned to use Jim Smith as an informer. Jim was an ideal candidate for this line of work. Basically, he was a decent guy. He'd been drawn into criminality by hardship and circumstances. With a wife and son to support, Jim Smith did what he had to to make ends meet. And that's how he got mixed up with Reg Holmes and Albie Stannard. These guys 
are Sydney Harbor royalty, the privileged sons of wealthy families. Both men cultivate a playboy image. Holmes is the boss of his family's long-established boat-building firm, while Standard operates a huge fleet of tugs, launches, and barges. It's been said that nothing comes into Sydney without Standard knowing about it. Holmes and Standard may be protected by a veneer of respectability, but Matthews knows they're mixed up in illegal activities. He knows because Jim Smith told him. At first, the work Jim did for Holmes and Standard was legit, but gradually, two men drew him into their more shady enterprises. Compared to some of the schemes they were involved with, insurance fraud was relatively mild. Jim knew for a fact that Standard was using his fleet of small boats to smuggle in drugs. He also heard about a plot to kidnap and murder one of Standard's business rivals. The scheme never panned out, but it had spooked Jim. He might be prepared to help out with a bit of financial crime, but he drew the line at murder. So what turned these two pampered golden boys into would-be criminal masterminds? It seems the depression had hit their legitimate businesses hard. To keep up the lifestyles they felt they were entitled to, the two friends were prepared to break the law. Big time. And they had a ready-made organized crime gang to help them. Abby Stannard employed an army of launch captains and dockers, many of whom had spent time in jail. These were hard men, not afraid of a bit of violence, and fiercely loyal to their generous boss. Some of them were prepared to do whatever Stannard asked them. Unlike Jim, they wouldn't shy away from murder. Detective Sergeant Matthews was determined to bring down Holmes and Stannard's criminal empire. And the way he was planning to do it was through Jim Smith. Only now, it looks like Jim is dead. Could Holmes and Stannard be behind his disappearance? They'd certainly have a motive. They'd have a lot to lose if Jim turned informer and revealed the truth about their illegal activities. Exposure would bring disgrace on their families and an end to their privileged lifestyles. You could kiss their yacht club membership goodbye. Oh yeah, <laughs> they have motive all right. For Detective Sergeant Matthews, this is personal. If Jim Smith was killed because he was a police informer, then Matthews owes it to Jim's wife to find those responsible. He starts by asking Gladys the obvious question. Did her husband have enemies? Gladys tells him about a disturbing incident that happened in August 1934. A small-time criminal called Stanley Watson had threatened Jim with a gun, saying, a man ought to blow your guts out for putting the coppers onto him. She says that there was another man with Watson, who she identifies as Patty Brady, a convicted forger and supposedly a friend of Jim's. Matthews keeps his emotions to himself, but he already knows the background of this incident. He knows that Jim was mixed up with a check forging scheme with Brady and Watson. How does he know? Because Jim told him all about it, of course. As a result of information provided by Jim, Watson was arrested. They would have pulled Brady in too, but he went on the run before the police could get to him. 
Jim got off scot-free, which is a pretty obvious sign that he's a snitch. Now, Watson was behind bars at the time of Jim's possible murder, so he's in the clear. But what about the other guy, Patty Brady? He vanished without a trace. No one knows where he is. Except Detective Sergeant Matthews. He has an idea. He suspects Brady might have come back to Sydney. And he may be behind Jim's disappearance. Now remember, so far, there's no body, just an arm. So Matthews can't even be sure that Jim Smith is dead. If this really is organized crime related, then maybe someone chopped off Jim's arm as a punishment. Matthews knows there's some brutal men in the Sydney underworld. Still, the assumption he's working on is that Jim has been murdered. And then, something happens that turns the assumption upside down. It's the beginning of May, about four weeks after Gladys last saw her husband, and a week after the shark spat out Jim's arm. A letter arrives at Jim and Gladys's house, addressed to their 17-year-old son, Raymond. Dated the 1st of May, the letter reads, Son, keep your mother quiet. I am in a jam. I plead it's okay. Call the cops off. Tell your mom I will have plenty soon, and we will be all right. They want me. Something in town. Never mind. Be a man for me. Your loving father, Jim Smith. The letter ends with this chilling command. Destroy this. When Gladys shows the letter to Detective Sergeant Matthews, he can hardly believe his eyes. What is this? Is Jim still alive? Has he somehow survived the loss of his arm? Or is the victim someone else? Someone who just happens to have an identical tattoo. But no, the simple answer is the letter's a hoax. Gladys says the handwriting is similar to Jim's, but definitely not his. It looks like Patty Brady's work. After all, this is what he does. It's his favorite grift. Forgery. But why? Why would he raise Raymond and Gladys' hopes like this? It's just cruel. The only answer Matthews can come up with is that Brady is Jim's killer, and this is a clumsy attempt to get the cops off his back. If so, his little ruse backfires. Matthew leads a team to Cronulla, where Jim told Gladys he was heading on a fishing trip before he disappeared. He takes along photographs of the missing man and the prime suspect, Brady. The detectives go door to door with the photographs, and before long, Matthew's suspicions are confirmed. A number of witnesses say they saw Jim and Brady together. Within the week, the detectives locate a holiday cottage in nearby Gunnamutta Bay, which had been rented by Brady under the name Williams. Now remember, at this point, Brady's still on the run from the law from the 1934 Czech forgery case it's likely he rented the out-of-the-way cottage as a place to hide out for a while, and he could enjoy a little vacation while he was at it. 
The cottage is a small wooden structure, painted white with dark cross timbers. It sits right there on the sand, raised on stilts for when the tide comes in. Like a glorified beach hut, though with a built-in boathouse, complete with a dinghy and a ramp leading down to the sea. Matthews learns that Brady also rented a motorboat from a neighbor. It's an idyllic location for a holiday. The surf washes soothingly over the pale sand, and the azure waters of the South Pacific blend invitingly, if you're prepared to brave the sharks. So was Brady here for a vacation, or did something more sinister take place within the cottage's flimsy walls? Matthews talks to the owner of the property, who tells him that when he inspected the cottage after Brady vacated, he found that a number of rugs were missing from one of the bedrooms, and the mattress had been replaced. A tin chest in the living room had also been swapped for a new one. That's not all. Some weights were taken from a sash window, and the rope and anchor from the dinghy had been replaced. Okay, now, let's just unpack all of that. Why would you want to replace a mattress? The same reason you might have to throw out some old rugs, because everything got soaked in blood. At least, that's the answer Detective Sergeant Matthews comes up with. And the trunk? Well, that would come in handy if you have a body to dispose of. Oh yeah, it's all pretty circumstantial. But Matthews is convinced he's on the right track. Especially when he learns that Brady sent his wife and son away shortly before April the 8th, which detectives have established was the last day anyone saw Jim Smith alive. So now, Matthews builds up a picture of what happened that day. In the evening, Jim was seen drinking with Brady and two other men at the Cecil Hotel in Canula. Jim and Brady went back alone to the cottage in the motorboat Brady had rented. Two men entered the cottage that night, Brady and Jim. The following morning, only one came out alive, Brady. The way Matthews sees it, Jim was killed and most likely dismembered in the bedroom. The body was put inside the tin chest, weighed down with the window weights and the anchor, then dropped from the motorboat into Sydney Harbor. Yeah, it's a theory. Now, all Matthews has to do is find the evidence to prove it. The most important piece of evidence he needs is the body, which he now believes is at the bottom of Gunamata Bay. So Matthews orders a major dragging operation he comes up with nothing. Despite this setback, the investigation has started making progress. Matthews tracks down a taxi driver who says he picked up Brady up at the cottage at 7 a.m. on April the 9th. Now let's just nail the timeline down here. This is the morning after the last sighting of Jim Smith alive. And just to clarify, Brady is on his own. There's no sign of Jim. The taxi driver describes Brady's appearance. He says, he had two days growth on his face, was unwashed, he looked haggard as if he'd been out all night and not even been to bed. Brady told the driver he'd been out on his motorboat till 4 a.m. the night before. As they drove away, 
He slumped down in the back seat as if he didn't want to be seen. He even pulled down the shades on the side windows. Then he kept looking out the back to check they weren't being followed. The guy seemed agitated and distracted, like he had something preying on his mind, something big, something serious. At first, he didn't seem to have a specific destination in mind, just told the driver to head into Sydney. Then around 8 a.m., after a long meandering journey, he told him to pull up at the top of the flight of steps in Sydney Harbor. The steps led down to a big house overlooking the bay. Brady didn't have any money, so he told the driver to wait while he went inside. A moment later, he came back up the steps and paid the fare before going down to the house again. So, this big, swanky house, it's in a prime real estate area of Sydney. It must belong to somebody rich, a real Mr. Big, not one of the small-time crooks Brady usually hangs around. Can you guess who lives there? If you're thinking either Holmes or Standard, you're on the money. In fact, the big house on the bay belongs to Reginald Holmes. This is a major breakthrough. The team talked to more taxi drivers and discovered that Brady visited Holmes numerous times, both before and after the date of Jim's presumed murder. Any reasonable observer would say that Brady and Holmes know each other quite well. It's good old-fashioned detective work, and it's paid dividends. Matthews has managed to establish a definite link between the man he thinks killed Jim Smith and one of the two crime kingpins Jim was informing on. Does this mean Patty Brady killed Jim Smith on Reg Holmes' orders? Of course, Brady had a strong enough motive for killing Jim himself. Revenge. But to Detective Sergeant Matthews, it looks a lot like the two men were in cahoots. Matthews is now convinced he has enough to arrest Brady. But first, he's got to find him. It's time to call in the Shadow Squad, a specialist surveillance unit within the CIB. Matthews wants eyes on all Brady's known associates 24-7. The strategy works. One of the Shadow Squad officers follows Brady's sister to a rundown apartment on Hipwood Street, North Sydney. The following day, the officer sees Brady come out of the apartment. They found his hideout. It's time for Detective Sergeant Matthews to make his move. It's the evening of Tuesday, May the 16th, 1935. Matthews positions officers at the rear of Brady's apartment while he and Detective Sergeant Almond take a more direct approach, banging on the front door. The door is eventually opened by Brady's wife, Grace. The two detectives push past her. Through an open doorway, Matthews catches sight of a man in pajamas running away from him. Matthews can only see the man's back, but it's obviously Brady. He's making a dash for a window in the bedroom. Brady opens the window and looks out. Then, suddenly, the fight goes out of him. He sees Matthew's men lined up below, cutting off his escape route. 
Brady turns around slowly. At last, Matthews is face to face with the man he believes killed Jim Smith. Brady looks the detectives up and down, taking in the situation. His expression gives nothing away, just as you'd expect from a skilled con man. Get dressed, Patty, Almond says. We're taking you back to town. All right, he responds casually. What's doing? Brady plays it cool, but he must know the jig is up. Or maybe he was expecting someone else to come knocking on his door. Someone he's afraid of even more than the police. The detectives take Brady back to CIB headquarters, where he insists he doesn't know anything. He's been in Tasmania since last year, only getting back that day. The detectives tell him they know he's lying. He's been in Sydney for at least two months, and they can prove it. Not only that, they can give a pretty full account of his movements. For instance, they know he rented a cottage in Cronulla and that certain items were missing from it when he left. Brady shakes his head. He's got no idea what they're talking about. Matthews and Almond leave him to stew and come back around midnight. When Brady tells them, I've been thinking things over, this is a serious matter and I'm not going to carry the baby. In other words, he's not going to take the rap for Jim's murder. If he's going down, he's going to take the others with him. Anyway, that's how it looks to Matthews and Almond. They hand Brady a pen and paper, and he writes out a long statement. To Matthews' frustration, Brady denies killing Jim Smith. He also denies knowing who did it. But here's the thing. The statement mentions Reg Holmes. He doesn't exactly say that Holmes killed Jim, but he does imply that there was bad blood between Holmes and Jim. Not just over the failed insurance scam, but also over a check fraud scam that Jim had involved Holmes in, practically blackmailing him to hand over confidential client information. So, what Brady has very cleverly done is provide the detectives with a motive for Holmes to want Jim dead, without actually saying he was the one who did it. Interestingly, Brady now admits to replacing the mattress and the tin chest in the rental home, but he offers no explanation of why he did so. For Detective Sergeant Matthews, Brady's statement is disappointing, but it does give him an idea. The next day, May the 17th, Matthews and Allman pick up Reg Holmes and take him into CIB. Then, Matthews engineers a dramatic confrontation. He leaves Holmes alone in an interview room. A moment later, the door opens, and Matthews brings Patty Brady into the room. The shock is visible on both men's faces. Do you know this man? Matthews asks Brady. Brady replies, that's Mr. Holmes, who I mentioned in my statement. But when Matthews asks Holmes the same question about Brady, he denies knowing who he is. Holmes had been caught in a provable lie, given the number of taxi drivers who can swear that they either dropped Brady off at Holmes' house or picked him up from there. And he even sticks to his lie when he makes a formal statement, 
He writes, I've been confronted with a man I do not know and have never seen before to my knowledge. I have never seen this man before and he has never visited me. D.S. Matthews can't help noticing that Holmes's hand is shaking as he signs the statement. The man's obviously terrified. What's he so afraid of? It's just one more question Matthews doesn't have the answer to. If Matthews is hoping for immediate results from the stunt, he's disappointed. Brady continues to insist he had nothing to do with Jim's disappearance, and Holmes is too scared to say anything at all. Without a confession from either of them, Matthews doesn't even have enough to go to trial. The detective starts to feel his whole case has fallen apart around him. The biggest problem that he faces is the same one he's had all along. There is no body. And without a body, he can't even prove that Jim's dead. He can place Brady at the cottage with Jim Smith the last night Jim was seen alive. But what if Brady's telling the truth? Maybe he didn't kill Jim. What if there was someone else there, too? And what if that person was the real murderer? If that's the case, you might wonder why Brady doesn't just say so. It's a fair question, but don't forget, Patty Brady is a career criminal. He knows the rules, and the number one rule is never snitch. That's probably the reason why Jim Smith got killed in the first place. Matthew's frustration increases. He's exhausted. He's close to breaking point. This case has taken over his life. His bosses are pushing him for a result. When is he going to make an arrest? And then there's the newspapers, still portraying the police as incompetent fools. He's convinced Brady and Holmes know more than they're letting on to. But no matter what he tries, he can't get them to open up. so, there's a crisis meeting on the case between Matthews, Almond, and the chief of the CIB. Matthews is desperate. He pushes him to charge Brady with Jim Smith's murder, convinced that will be the straw that breaks him. He'll either confess or give him the name of the killer. But Detective Sergeant Almond isn't so sure. He's seen how cool Brady is under pressure. He thinks the guy is perfectly capable of holding out. His view is they don't have enough to charge Brady. They've got no choice but to let him go. There's an open disagreement between Matthews and his right-hand man. It's left to the chief to decide. In the end, he sides with Matthews. At 7.15 p.m. on Friday, May 17th, Patty Brady is formally charged with feloniously and maliciously murdering Jim Smith on or around the 8th of April, 1935. Brady responds sarcastically, Good, oh! Matthews keeps up the pressure on Holmes, too. He and Allman head straight over to the affluent neighborhood where Holmes and his family live. It's simple psychology. 
having the police come to his fancy waterside residence will bring home how much he has to lose if his criminal activities come to light. Holmes still denies knowing Brady, but the detectives can see he's shaken by the latest development. If Brady's been charged with murder, maybe he'll start giving up the names of the other people involved in the crime. Holmes looks like a man on the edge. Who knows what he'll do next? We'll find that out in part two. Spoiler alert, it's pretty crazy. Brady and Holmes aren't the only ones feeling the pressure. Detectives Matthews and Allman are at the end of a 12-hour shift. Neither of them can say whether the case is coming together or about to blow up in their faces. Matthews goes home for a couple hours of rest. There's no chance of sleep, of course. The thoughts are racing around and around in his head like a shark in an aquarium. He just lies there on his back, staring at the ceiling, going over every twist and every turn of this bizarre case. It all started when that damn tiger shark threw up Jim's arm. How the hell did the arm get in the shark in the first place? And if that shark hadn't been caught by the Hobson brothers, or had managed to keep the contents of his stomach down, there'd be no case. No one would be the wiser. Jim Smith would just be another missing person. And Frank Matthews wouldn't have the chief on his back. He might even get some sleep. Early the following morning, Grace Brady presents herself at CIB, asking to see her husband. She tells Brady she's going to make a statement and give the police everything she knows. In fact, Grace Brady's statement turns out to be a massive anticlimax. It doesn't tell Matthews and Almond anything that they don't already know, I'm talking to taxi drivers. But it does have one interesting consequence. Brady asks to see his wife's statement. He reads it through in silence, only commenting at the end. That is right. A few hours later, he asks to speak with Matthews. Brady's taken from his cell to an interview room where Matthews is waiting for him. You wanted to see me, says the detective. Brady looks him straight in the eye and says, I want to tell you all my movements from the time I took the cottage in Cronulla to the time I was arrested. So is this it? Is Detective Sergeant Matthews finally about to learn the truth about what happened the night Jim Smith disappeared? Find out in part two of The Arm and the Shark. Next time. On Detectives Don't Sleep, we stay with Detective Sergeant Matthews as he investigates the extraordinary case of the shark that swallowed an arm. On a May morning in 1935, onlookers are riveted by the sight of a desperate man racing across Sydney Harbor in a speedboat. That man is Reginald Holmes, who police suspect is involved in Jim Smith's disappearance. Whatever Holmes is trying to run away from soon catches up with him, and D.S. Matthews finds himself with a second murder to investigate. Matthews believes he knows who the killers are, but a wall of silence protects him. 
Has the dogged detective done enough to bring the guilty to justice? Find out next week in the explosive conclusion of The Arm and the Shark. <laughs>